0: Your Bibles
1: and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14 this morning. It is such a, pl- a privilege and a pleasure to be with you. Dr. Aiken, I have been a fan of yours since the time I had the pleasure of pastoring your sons. I know you well enough that you would give the lion's share of credit to Miss Charlotte, but there is something about the power of a present father that cannot be overlooked. And so it's grateful. I'm grateful for, for this opportunity to be here. And I just want to introduce you to my family real quick. Have a picture of them. This is these are our, this is my wife and my four kids. Uh, Ava is 10 years old. Max is nine years old. Miles is seven, and Jack is six. That's four and four years. anybody beat that? And uh, oh, did you beat me? Right at three and a half. Okay, I bow to you, sir. Well done. Well done. It has been a joy to uh, serve as a pastor. I grew up in the home of a steelworker. I come from a long line of steelworkers, and I never dreamed I would be a pastor. At the age of 29, I was elected to become the pastor of a fairly large church. I had never been a pastor before, not even of a small church, and it was a very um, intimidating experience to walk in following a pastor that had been there for 23 years. When I took the church at age 29, it was running about 1800, and then for the last seven years we served there, laboring and growing. And God just begins to speak to our hearts in ways that we didn't realize. And this was my crisis moment. You have yours. My daughter came back from the Awanas program on Wednesday night. This was the third year she had come back with this reaction. It was the night when you're supposed to bring an unchurched friend with you to Awana's. And in our church, we made a uh, concession for kids who just couldn't find one. And we said, you can bring three cans of perishable items for the food bank if you can't find an unchurched friend. And three years in a row, as the senior pastor of one of the largest churches in Tennessee, my daughter brought cans. my wife and I, we begin to begin to realize that our children are a reflection of us. They don't have any church friends because we don't. And so we had this crisis moment when God began to speak to us about what would it be like for us to go and to live as missionaries and to live in a land of obscurity and labor in a place where there was such a, a great need for gospel churches. So now, I live on Russell Court, And I play basketball on Thursday nights with uh, three guys on my street whom I've gotten to know well. One is a committed atheist who believes in the afterlife. So figure out how that works. Uh, One is a universalist Unitarian. And one is a Quaker uh, but, but hasn't been to church in 20 years. And these are the people that I do life with. I said to them recently, I said, guys, why don't we have a man club? And on Thursday night, we'll have a fire, and we won't invite women, and we'll just talk about men's stuff. And we'll read a book. You guys pick the book. And they're like, yeah. And they picked Lone Survivor, which is a Navy SEAL book, a great book. And we just talked about killing and stuff. Um, and uh, I can just tell you, I grew up in the northwest corner of Illinois and uh, have been spent, spent the last 13 years in the south. And it is such a different world out there. It is such a different world. And so, um, we were starting this church called Storyline Fellowship. And about 50 people moved out there with us. One of them was my brother-in-law and his wife who shut down a lucrative construction business to come. And there are three children. And some families from around the country, a lot of them were in the college ministry at Inglewood. And... Uh, We've picked up about another 50 folks from the area that love Jesus and are wanting to see him do something new in the community. And so our first preview service is next weekend. We'd appreciate your prayers in that. Uh, It's funny what church planters get into. Dr. Akin, it's funny. Here's here's how my life is now. I'm looking at those chairs. Those are $19 at Sam's. You know that? Because I just bought them, 340 of them. Because church planters have to have chairs. And my previous church just bought us 340 chairs. This is my life. This is church planting. And we're so excited to set up those chairs. Like, I can't wait to set them up. I want to be the guy that sets them up. Anyway, 1 Samuel 14. So 39 years ago, um, I was born, and I was born a man. And so, in case you were wondering, I am not a woman. I hope that is an obvious thing to you. When the potter was forming me in my mother's womb in in Northwest Illinois, he decided that a little man should come forth from my mother. And so manly would this one be, he would weave the word M-A-N into my last name, Ben Mandrell. And so Ben Mandrell came forth, and I came out feet first. Uh, My father tells me I came out jumping out like a cat upon its prey. And I was a little man. And might I suggest an idea that could get me shot, especially in my home state of Colorado. A man is not the same thing as a woman. We are not the same thing. And no matter how hard the enemy works to blur the lines, he will never be able to override the creation ordinance that man is man and woman is woman. We are not the same thing. Uh, we don't think the same. We don't approach relationships the same. We don't talk the same. We don't load the dishwasher the same. We, we just don't approach life the same. So so is anybody out there getting this? So, so raise your hand if you are not a woman. Okay? Some of you men are not participating at a most unfortunate time. Okay? There's a sizable tribe of men here. And I just want to encourage the men today, if I could, ladies, if you'd allow me to, To sit up, perk up, and pay attention to this man of the Old Testament who I think has a lot to say to us about masculinity and what it means to be a man of God. I am going to introduce you to Jonathan. He is a remarkably masculine fellow. He has unfortunately received a total wimp for a father. His dad, King Saul, was handpicked by the nation of Israel to sit on the first throne of the empire. But unfortunately, Saul's outward size does not match his inward stature. Saul was a physical giant and a spiritual dwarf. Some of you grew up with a dad like that. And you want to do it different. You know, the Old Testament says that the sins of the father are visited to the third and fourth generation. And I don't know how you interpret that, but I certainly don't see that as fatalism or determinism. I don't believe that a boy is destined to doom because he had a bad dad. I do believe that sons swim in the wake of their dads. And just like in water skiing... The most natural thing for a little boy is to just follow the wake. It's easy. It's the easiest, most natural thing to do. But with talent, work, skill, and maybe perhaps the grace of God, it's possible to get outside the wake and to do something else. And and Jonathan grew up, I believe, with the conviction that I don't know what I'll do with my life, but I know I won't do it like my dad did it. And how tragic it is that so many little boys, I believe in our culture today, are growing up with that same driving passion. I don't know what I will do, but I won't do it like my dad did it. Woe to us if our sons feel this way. And in First Samuel 14, this young warrior demonstrates for all of us, but especially for us as men, uh, what it means to live a life that's ready to risk, and Jonathan shows us the way to revive our souls. It's the way of faith that involves risk. And so in the Bible says in first Samuel, chapter 13, I'm going to pick up the last verse of chapter 13. Now, a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. And one day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So we know who the Philistines are. Obviously, Goliath was a Philistine, the fierce enemies of Israel. And one day, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, why don't you and I just jump in the middle of a hornet's nest and let's see if we come out alive. And the scripture says, Jonathan, it specifically says this, and Jonathan did not tell his dad. Now, the Bible leaves this a blank for us to fill in on our own, but why would Jonathan not tell his dad? Well, I only have to revisit my adolescence and think about the question, why did I not tell my dad things I was about to do? Because I knew he wouldn't let me do them. And so Jonathan doesn't tell his dad. And the reason he doesn't tell his dad is is very obvious to me because he knew that his dad had never smelled bravery or courage. He knew that he had more faith in the bones of his hand than his dad, Saul, had in the whole body of his frame. Jonathan knew that his dad would never go for this kind of faith thing, this kind of risk. And so in verse 4, skipping ahead, it says, On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach this Philistine outpost was a cliff, and it names the cliff. And this is another one of those places in the Bible where we wonder, why do we get this data Well, this data is not there by accident. This is geographical data to help you understand the insane nature of this mission. That he was not only going to go up and take on this heap of Philistines, but they were going to have to slither up the side of a steep cliff so noiselessly that they would be undetected. This would be an example of ancient kamikaze. Insane to attempt this. And it's breathtaking to see the way Jonathan approaches the mission. Look in verse 6. Jonathan said to his Young armor bearer, come on, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised fellows. That's Old Testament trash talk, by the way. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, is that breathtaking or what? Do you see what this man just said? This, this is why he is a model for us. This guy believes in God. And not only does he believe in God, he has the guts to go for it. So stout is his faith that he's willing to put some skin in the game. And not just some skin in the game, he's willing to put all the skin in the game. He is fully trusting in the Lord when he says, Perhaps the Lord will bail us out. What a confession of confidence. Here is a heart that longs to glorify God. And as I plan to prepare to plant this church in Denver. Do you know what my prayer has been for the last 12 months? God, give me the heart of Jonathan that wanted to do something great for God. And my prayer has been, Lord, as I move into the front lines of this warfare, let me see to my right and to my left a few other Jonathans. Would you send some with me that would have a heart that says, I want to spend my life doing something great for God. Ben Franklin once said, Some people die at 25 and aren't buried until they're 75. And I wonder, as we look in the pews of our churches today, is this an indictment upon us? Where are the Jonathans in the church of Jesus Christ? Where have they gone? I'm convinced that our churches are losing men. We are in a full-blown, code-red man crisis in our country. It's bleeding into the church. And my conviction is that most of our society's ills stem back to problems with manhood. As the family goes, so goes society. As the marriage goes, so goes the family. And it has been my experience that as the man goes, so goes the marriage. It was John Maxwell who famously quipped... Everything rises and falls on leadership and is our church not living witness. The spirit of Jonathan has to be revived in us, gentlemen. We must fan it into flame. There's a holy boldness in the heart of every little boy that's just waiting to be let off the leash. And I know this because I have three little ones. Little men, little boys. Do um, you know what this is? This, this is just like a stick. A stick an ordinary piece of wood and recently my boys and i were walking through the woods and my my, my wife my daughter with us and my son miles saw one that looked almost just like this and what you and i see is an ordinary chunk of a tree he immediately saw as a ruinous galactic gun and and he could not leave something like this in the woods for unskilled hands to discover This would be far too dangerous. And so he ran over and he picked this up and he carried it all the way home. And when he picked it up, my little daughter uh, said to him, Oh, that's so gross. Put it down. You know? And then she said, I think it's got worms on it. You know? And this caused him to covet the weapon all the more. You know? So, what causes. A little six-year-old boy to see a stick and turn it into a weapon. Let me tell you what happens. He has a man head. And inside a man's head is this longing for risk and adventure. And the world hasn't yet choked it out of him. It's still alive. There's still hope for miles. And the reason he is like this is because he's masculine. And he has this desire. He has used that weapon to save Princess Leia a thousand times over. And every man has in his heart this dream of coming into the front lines and doing something great with his life. And once we meet Christ, we want to do something great for him. We read these stories and there's not a single guy in this room that doesn't want to be Jonathan. We don't want to be Judas, the pansy who went rogue and ran. We want to be Peter who picks up swords and slices ears off. I mean, that's who we want to be. But you know, who we want to be is not always who we are. And the confession now comes forth from the pulpit, self-disclosure. Though the word man is woven into my name, as previously mentioned, I have never killed a wild animal with my bare hands, rifle, or a bow. I did run over a squirrel last year. I felt really bad about it. (laughs) The thing was just twitching. I felt terrible. I have never slept with a woman other than my wife. I've never fought in a military battle and come home with applause. I've never scaled the north face of the mountains that I see every day when I grow when I wake up. And I have never reeled in a forty pound fish. All of the stuff that society says I must do to measure up to manhood. I have not done any of that stuff, but thanks be to God that I have a word that says to me that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to find one whose heart is fully his. That the size of a man in God's eyes is not measured by the number of dead heads on his wall, the number of women that he has been with, or the golden distinctions that he has brought back from a war. God measures a man by the size of of his courage and his heart and his faith. And if that is the measurement of you, how tall are you? So what God wants from me, I'm convinced, what he wants from every man is a heart that's ready to prove him strong. A heart that's ready to step on the limb. And that's what Jonathan does. Look at verse 7. We find out there's not just one man on this mission, but there are actually two men. Do all that you have in mind, verse 7. His armor bearer said, go ahead. I am with you, heart. I am with you, soul. So not just one, but two are tallied on this great mission for God. And let's be clear. This is not macho man, self-confident stupidity. These men are not trying to jump off a bridge to impress a pack of ladies. Uh, these, these men are trusting not in their own ability or skill. They're putting all their chips in the center of the table and they are trusting in God. Perhaps the Lord will work in our behalf. And so in verse 8, now things, now he's got the green light from his good friend, Jonathan says this. So come on then. We will cross over to the men and we are going to let them see us. Now, this is one of my favorite parts in the story. You, you've got to just put yourself in the armor bearer's shoes here for a moment. Imagine what he's thinking. Okay, Jonathan, I was okay with the two on 20 thing. And I even agreed to scaling the wall of doom. But now you want to make reservations? You want to call ahead and tell them that we're coming, which eliminates the whole element of surprise, which was the greatest advantage in ancient warfare. And Jonathan says, That's
0: exactly what we're
1: going to do. Let's stack the deck. In God's favor, so that when the whole thing goes down, your name and my name never make the headlines. There's no que- there will be no question about who pulled this one off, and all glory for our lives will go to God. Does anyone feel convicted about the motivation of Jonathan? Jonathan? And you have to admit this was some kind of crazy experiment. So Jonathan says, "Okay, it's going to go down like this in verse nine. So if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, then we will stay where we are and we're not going to go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost, looks at the Philistines The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up to us and we will teach you a lesson. Now that's my translation. It says teach you a lesson. If you're reading from the ESV, it says teach you a thing. Or one translation says, and I like this one, teach you a thing or two. I think it captures the real message that's being sent there. This is the sin of self-confidence. And so many of us have it. I've had it. It's believing in yourself. And our little boys and our little girls, it's just drilled into them. Believe in yourself. And it's always better to believe in God than to believe in yourself. You see, the Philistines, this this is one of those stark contrasts in Scripture. The Philistines saw themselves as invincible. Jonathan and his armor bearer saw themselves as immortal. Living or dying, they were in God's hands. So the Apostle Paul would put it this way later in the New Testament, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or as Piper says, what's the worst they can do on the mission field? Kill you? You See, the Christian worldview assumes that death is nothing more than a gate into a greater life. And when we live with this teleological or end-in-mind thinking, it really frees us up to take some bold risks in the present. And Jonathan believed that God would save him living or dying. And all of us, even as pastors, we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, do I really believe that? And if I believe that about the future, how does it inform the present? Now watch how the story ends. Verse 12 be. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. And then verse 15 sums it up. Panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and in the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Isn't that what you want to do with your life? Isn't that why you're here studying and training? You want your life, when it is over, to create some kind of ground-shaking experience for God. But it doesn't happen with passivity. It happens with bravery and with courage and with faith. Now, I have to tell you, for the last 18 months, I have completed my demon dissertation, which was on the subject of restoring biblical manhood in the church. And so for 18 months, I have studied the man-creature. I've really studied myself. I've studied my boys. I've studied men in the church. And, and these are two takeaways from today's text I just want to leave you with as we close that I think are also very consistent with what I found in my studies and what I know to be true of me. Number one, every man has a Jonathan spirit that's waiting to be released. Every man. And and we feel most manly when we are moving toward some kind of conflict, when we are moving toward some kind of chaos, when we've been given this this warrior heart from God and it's galvanized by taking new ground. And this is why, by the way, uh, speaking about how we do church today, this is why men die inside when you stick us in a circle of 16 people, 12 of whom we've never met, and you ask us to confess our deepest sins. It defies our warrior heart because we will only open up in the presence of men we believe to be armor bearers. And this is not the case with women. Women are uh, remarkably free creatures with self-disclosure. A woman will unclothe herself emotionally, letting other people see her scars and wounds. Women are emotionally immodest. They'll share anything and everything, it seems. But women are opposite in the physical sense. They are physically modest creatures. That means they would rather reveal problems from their childhood than problems they feel about their bodies. You take that and flip it upside down and you have a man. And uh, men in this room, we would rather take off our shirts, no matter how grossly out of shape we are, and run around the sanctuary six times than to repeat some of the things that our dads said to us that damaged us as kids. And why is that? It's because Superman never talks about his kryptonite. We don't want other people to see where we're weak because we feel like we want to be, at least we hope to be, warriors. And so one of the things we have to understand in the church today is that discipling men is different than discipling women. And we have to get serious about that. And I believe that the spirit of Jonathan still lives in the souls of men, but we have to pull it out of there. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He was one of my heroes. I'm sure he's yours also. But he says this about love. It's a, it's a paragraph, and you've probably heard it before. But to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And this is, this is where we have to understand that the, the reason men aren't running to the front lines is because they're walking wounded. And the reason they're walking wounded is because the gospel hasn't gotten in there to cleanse the infection. Because there's only one thing that cleanses the infection of a man's childhood and hurt and all of the stuff he carries with him. That's perfect love. Because perfect love casts out fear. And until we're perfectly loved, we don't live fearlessly. We live shamefully. And so the Gospel is the very thing that has to get inside and set a man free before he runs to the front lines of warfare for the Lord Jesus. And so every man, I believe, is waiting for that sense of freedom that comes through knowing and being deeply loved by Christ. And second, and I would just give a word to the women. Many of you are here to support your husband. Many of you are here because God has called you to some sort of ministry. But I want to I specifically call your attention to the armor bearer because i believe every man needs a loyal companion to encourage him now allow me to just apply this to the context of marriage for a moment ladies learn from the armor bearer in this every husband in the church today wants to be the jonathan in this story but if he's honest he wonders that if he starts living this kind of life if he'll look back and see that he walks alone I needed, in order to make this missionary move to Denver and to leave the established church, I needed the vocal support of Lindley. I needed it. I wish I could tell you that I would have been as strong as Abraham who said to Sarah, Pack your bags, you'll like it there. You know, I I think it's kind of how that conversation went. And I don't think that I could have been strong enough to do that Had my wife not said to me in her own words, go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. I needed that. And this is what I want to encourage uh, wives. You don't realize the power you have. That every man wants the approval and not just permission, but partnership of his soul mate, of his wife. And he needs the courage that comes only from the magical words that come from your mouth, which say, I believe in you, heart and soul, I am with you. You lead and I will follow. I'll go with you. And if we go down, we'll go down together. These words I don't believe are spoken often in the context of Christian marriage. And I believe they are probably the formula for the most amazing marriage. So I want to close with two questions for you with my time running out. Number one. I want to ask all of you, are you attempting anything that is sure to fail without the help of God? Where are you living with everyday fear that if God doesn't come through on this one, you are in big trouble? Because if you don't have an answer to that question, you're not living by faith. Where are you exercising great faith in your life or preparing to do so? And number two, I would say to all this to all of you who are fathers particularly. Are you leading your children to walk by faith? You know one of the greatest motivations for my wife and I to leave West Tennessee and to move to the West. One of the greatest motivations for us was the vision that we had for our children's future. What if my daughter Ava falls in love with a missionary. And he says I want to take your daughter To the ends of the earth and she looks at me with timid eyes and says daddy is this okay i want to be able to look ava in the eyes one day and say it's not only okay it's what we have tried to show you to do we have tried to model it so that you would be the living witness for the gospel and all of us have to ask ourselves the questions as parents Are my children learning how to exercise faith by watching the way that I live? Let it be so in the church of Jesus Christ that the men would set the bar high in taking great risks for God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is always easy to revert to the old man to become like Adam who is passive. Father, we we have fear in our hearts that often, often prevents us from following You. Oh Lord, fill our hearts with faith to believe that You will not just perhaps, You will most certainly save us in this world and the world to come. And it's in the great name of Jesus Christ.